Welcome to One More Thing Before You Go. At some point in our life, we will all be affected by the loss of some kind. When it comes to homicide, or being a victim, or something from a traumatized version of losing someone, how do we overcome that? How do we deal with it? In this episode, we're going to answer those questions and more when we talk to a criminologist specializing in homicide and being a victim. My name is Michael Hurst. I am your host. And this is that thing about finding happiness after a tragic loss. I'd like to introduce Dr. Ashley Wellman, PhD. She's a mom, a scholar, an advocate specializing in homicide, victimology, and trauma since 2008. As a widow, as a widow and a single mother, she had to rebuild and redefine her life. Now as the author of My Friend Fresno Children's Book Series, she is creating a life full of magic for her family while spreading a message of love, acceptance, and friendship to all those who interact with her. Welcome to the show, Dr. Wellman. Thank you, Michael. I'm so glad to be here. Well, we have a lot in common, actually. You're a criminologist and deal with homicide and victims. I was a law enforcement officer in my career, and I dealt with that from another perspective. I have so much respect for you. Thank you for the service you provided our community. And it's it's fascinating how we're able to look at such depravity and such sadness and then be able to process it from a way where we want to help other people. And I think that's what we both do in our career. Oh, absolutely. It's kind of an interesting perspective because, you know, from my point of view in regard to um, my career, I dealt a lot with suicide and I dealt a lot with um, homicide and with uh, severe assault and, and loss, loss in general, unexpected deaths and so forth, and having to deliver those messages to people who who had unexpectedly lost somebody. So um, I personally had been affected by it myself when I uh, actually had three incidences that took place. And we'll talk about that later, but I had three incidents of my own where I had to sit back and really kind of process and try to figure out how to, how to learn how to grieve from my process because I always had that block up, you know, you don't cry, you don't have fear, you don't show people emotion. From my perspective, it just you know, from that's my profession. You just don't do it because you have to be that shoulder to lean on for somebody else. I think you have a, there's a double standard too. As a, as a man, our, our culture has said that you also then have to be strong for everyone else around you. And what I had to learn was that, you know, grieving not only by yourself, but then as a family or as a, you know, department or what, whatever your, whatever unit you're grieving in, it's so important to have that availability of other people to grieve with. Cause I think, Sometimes we do try to do it all by ourselves, and then we're not able to process the grief fully. Well, and I think I'm hoping that um, we can help teach and help our listeners learn a little bit of how they can deal with their grief and their loss. I'm excited about that. Absolutely. You are a criminologist specializing in homicide and victimology. Can you help us to understand what that means? Yeah. So I always had a love of true crime. I'm one of those people who if you know, Unsolved Mysteries was on, or there was a, a documentary about a murder, my dad and I would be watching it. And I remember going to college and no, no shame towards you, Michael, but my advisor at the time said, you don't want to be a you know, in criminal justice because you're the only job is being a cop. And at the time I thought, well, I mean, she's telling me I don't want to do that. Right. So I went ahead and I went down a different path. I studied public relations and then I was working with law enforcement at a special event. And I said, dang it, you know, this is 
this is what I wanted to do. So I went back to graduate school at the University of Florida, and I received my master's and my PhD there in criminology. And while I was there, my heart was really focused on the fact that I was going to learn from law enforcement. I went straight to the source which most scholars don't necessarily do. I called my local police department. I said, hi, I want to study cold case homicides. Can I come work with you? And I think the first thought was absolutely not. And uh, I ended up for three years working alongside a cold case unit down in Gainesville, Florida. And the most incredible experience, I think, for law enforcement and myself, because we were teaching each other. Yeah, so many things. And and for me, that's what learning is all about, is kind of embracing what everyone brings to the table. And so... My goal going into that department was to really understand how cold cases work. So the cold cases, there's so many different definitions, but really usually a case that's about a year old, the original detective may not be working it, or uh, there's no new leads in it. So it's kind of dried up a little bit, but but it's still open. And I was going to think about the case file until a mom came in one day and she said she was crying and she just flew through the door of this cold case department. And she said, I want to know what the expletive happened to my daughter and she was angry and she was very upset. And the detective grabbed me. I was 25. And he said, Ashley, will talk to you about your daughter's case. And he just kind of shoved me out (laughs) the door with this poor mom. And in the the moment I thought, I don't know what I'm doing. You know, what am I going to tell her? So I just said, tell me about your daughter. I remember your case, right? Tell me about her. And I listened to her about her daughter, not as a murder victim, but as her daughter, her little girl, and what the fears were and what the emotions had been like and what the journey had been like for this family. And at the end, I felt so bad because I said, I can't give you anything. Like, I know your case. There's nothing in that case file that is going to be promising right now. And she said, Ashley, I didn't come for that. All I came for was for someone to listen to me and to tell me that my daughter is not forgotten and that she's important. And I thought, oh my God, right? I I was just, oh, it was so amazing. And I thought, my God, just as a human being, the connection I had with her and thinking that I have this platform that if if I'm blessed enough that someone will tell me their story, maybe I want to use my platform to do that. And so that kickstarted what my dissertation ended up being and what my research has been ever since. And it's understanding those lived experiences of survivors of cold case homicides, obviously transitioned into homicide in general. And I've been blessed enough to work with sexual assault survivors as well. And kind of understanding ideas of secondary victimization and all of these different things. And then helping law enforcement say, okay, I now understand the family's perspective, but I also have worked with law enforcement and know the true reality of what's happening there. But what I teach law enforcement is that whatever the survivor's perception of you is, is their reality too. So you have to understand what their image of what you're doing is. And then you have to meet them halfway by saying, you know, like put the pride down, all of those things and listen, because that's really at the end of the day, kind of what these survivors need is just someone to listen. Don't we all, we all need to have someone listen to us, acknowledge us and acknowledge our uh, existence and our pain. And our pain. And our pain because it's so real. And I think, you, you know this, grief gets exhausting for people. And so when we're, when we're in the middle of it, a lot of people around us aren't don't know how to handle that. And so it gets exhausting. And so to know that you have someone who will listen 
is just kind of a breath of fresh air. Absolutely. I learned that in my profession and as a human being, it, it, I got a lot more accomplished when I listened, especially working domestic violence than I did um, anywhere else. The, it, was, it, was, it was easier to do my job when I took the time to listen first and not go by the book. Mm-hmm. I'm retired now, so I can say yeah. I didn't always go yeah. by the book. And <laughs> we all have a book. I, There's a book for follow the, <laughs> yeah. I Don't do checklist one, two, three, and four. Right. Rip it's out just, page 42. Just yeah. skip over that. <laughs> so, yeah, it was, it was, everybody wants to be heard. So that, you know, that's important. So even aside from what we're talking about now, if you know anybody that's obviously that's out there for the listeners, you know, just have an ear, listen, open your heart, listen, just listen. So you already just told me what motivated you into the profession. So uh, I think that, um, I think that's an outstanding beginning. And I think that you look, I mean, our viewers can't, our listeners cannot see this, but but you know, you get excited when you talk about this. You you can your eyes light up, your face lights up. I, I like. I that. do. It's it's making a difference, and it's connecting with humanity. And even though it's a heavy topic, to be able to connect with other people and to learn their stories and to be trusted with those stories, what a blessing as you know, fellow human beings. If someone's able to share intimate moments of their life with you, that's a you know that's a big deal. So I'm very honored that I've had that as kind of my legacy as a, as a scholar is trying to make a difference for these families. Well, how you have a personal loss of your own, don't you? I do. Could you tell me a little bit about that? Absolutely. So my husband and I had just actually relocated. Um, I have a little girl. Let me start with that. Who's the greatest blessing of my life. She's six now, but when she was four, um, her daddy, buddy and I, we decided to uh, relocate to Texas for a job. I had I had kind of achieved. If you if any of you guys are familiar with higher education, I had achieved tenure. I had kind of hit the peak of what a scholar is supposed to be. And the myth is that when you become a tenured faculty member, you know your life is just it's all fulfilled. Your career is is kind of peaked. And I wasn't happy. I remember I got the notice that I had been promoted. And it was kind of like oh all right, you know, and, um, and I had had multiple miscarriages, um, right around that same time. And so my husband said, I need my wife back. Let's move. Like, let's just have a fresh start somewhere. And so we relocated to Texas in, um, August of 2018. And so it was the day before I was supposed to start work and I ran upstairs to take a nap and buddy had stayed down on the couch with my daughter, Reagan, they were snuggling. And I was just going to go take a nap before my first day of school. And I hear glass shatter downstairs. And at my first thought, you know, as a mom was something was broken. And so I screamed down, you know, Reagan, what broke buddy, what broke? And no one answered me. And so I knew something was wrong. And I ran downstairs of our little condo and buddy was lying on the floor um, right in between the bathroom and the hallway. And it looked like he was seizing. And when I grabbed him, he was so cold and he was sweating and, um, he wasn't breathing. He was just looked terrified. And so I screamed and I ran upstairs to get my cell phone. I come back down. And by the time I've come back down, my four-year-old has wandered around into the hallway and she sees her daddy lying in the hall. So in the moment of panic, 
I didn't really pay much attention to Reagan. It was pitiful. I could, I can still hear her screams of, you know, please save my dad, save my daddy. What's wrong with dad? And I'm there trying to pan, you know, I'm panicking, screaming, like, please breathe. What are, what's happening? And I'm on the phone with 911 and the poor operator, you know, saying, Ashley, you have to calm down. You have to tell me what's wrong. And she's sending a fire truck and an ambulance. And so I hear the fire truck and the ambulance pass us. And uh, at the same time, Buddy's kind of coming back, you know, up and down. Um, he'll come into trying to catch his breath and then he would not be breathing. And so, um, the, the, you know, police officers came in, firefighters came in, the EMT people were coming in and everyone kept telling me, just get Reagan and get outside, take your daughter outside. And they said, you need to calm down because he has a heartbeat and I need you to get your daughter calmed down. I need you to calm down. And so I walked outside and I'm like, okay, well, they're pretty confident that he's okay because he has a heartbeat. And so I'm outside and I will tell you, there was a law enforcement officer there who was so good to us who, you know, I was just literally holding on to him because I could barely stand up by myself. And he was so good with my daughter. And, um, I, I started to come down to this idea of, okay, he's all right. And when he wakes up, I'm going to tell him like, you son of a bitch, don't you ever do that again? Because it scared me. And then another fire truck comes up and these guys look really worried and they run into the house and I kept screaming, does he have a heartbeat still? Does he have a heartbeat? And finally, one of the men, I grabbed onto his shirt and I said, does he have a heartbeat? Yes or no. And he turned around and he said, no, it doesn't look good. And so it was the first time I think my brain had actually said, oh my God, I actually think he's going to die. And um, I got my daughter taken by, a, by a, a person I worked with. And I went to the emergency room and I watched for 60 minutes while they tried to do CPR to resuscitate him. And they got him back four times. And then um, after the fourth time, the nurse screamed or the doctor screamed at me and she said, you need to stop because if he comes back, he's going to be brain dead. And I think it was the first moment that I literally realized he's he's gone and he had probably passed away 60 minutes ago you know at the at the house and my world shattered i mean everything that i was in that moment everything that was important to me at that moment is now completely gone um this new life we had just moved to start my little girl who's literally i used to tease them i could have left for 4 years and no one would have known that i was missing because the two of them did so good together and so i'm sitting there thinking like my best friend's gone, her best friend's gone, and he's kind of the rock of our family. I can't do this by myself. And I remember kissing him goodbye. And there were two things, the only two things I kept telling him was, I'm sorry, I didn't save you. And I'm going to try to make a beautiful life for your daughter. And I don't know how or why I was left behind, but I'm going to make a good life for her. And um, I had to go home and tell a four-year-old that her dad died. And it was one of those things, the only reason I knew anything to do, because I didn't really even know how to put two feet, you know, one foot in front of the other. The only thing I knew to do was that I had to tell Reagan the truth. And I had to tell her in very kid-friendly but honest terms that her dad had died. He didn't go to sleep. He's not flying around the sky. He died and his body shut down. And so I, she came in at... at that afternoon. And she said, you know, I brought daddy a figurine because doctors make people better. So I know he's okay. And then I had to tell her, you know, no, daddy died today. And it started kind of, I'd say four months of hell on earth of trying to navigate our grief together. I can see that you're still very much affected by that. So I appreciate you sharing that. Of course, of course. 
So as Ashley Wellman, how did that affect you and your daughter? Oh, Lordy. Um, how didn't it affect me? Um, what is wild is that I studied this, right? So I used to, I used to tease, this is the most morbid, bizarre thing ever. I used to tell my husband, like, what would happen if I got murdered? <laughs> because I am a murder specialist, you know, like how weird would that be? And then, you know, as I had gone through my career, I'm a grief specialist, right? And so it's like, oh, I should understand all of these things. The moment I became Ashley the widow, I didn't know anything. You know, I have a PhD studying this and I sure didn't have a PhD in life in, in that kind of regard at all. So I had to really step back and rely on black and white written things I had suggested to families that I worked with. And I really had to become someone who was willing to learn how to do what I had been telling other people to do. Um, for me, you know, the miscarriages had kind of redefined and taken away the role of mother that I had envisioned for myself. And, you know, the hope was when we moved, we would continue a family, right? We would continue to try for a family. Well, that's now gone. I, my role as wife is gone, right? All of these things that I had defined myself as this, this huge scholar, that was my dream. Well, that's not important right now. You know, so everything that kind of defined me, I had to, I had to learn how to redefine myself and I had to learn to ask for help, which I'm very stubborn. And so I don't really ask for help, but I knew the moment I got home, I knew I need therapy. My daughter needs help. We need grief counselors because we had watched him die and it was very violent the way his body had reacted to that death. And so I knew I needed some kind of therapy to help with that. I knew my daughter needed to be able to craft a story of her dad's death at four. So I got a lot of help from professionals. I got a lot of love from friends and family. Um, and, and looking back now, you know, there were moments where I'd get so frustrated with people because I'm like, don't say that. Don't, this is, oh my God, this isn't helping. And in hindsight now, I have so much grace for not only myself, but for other people. And so looking back, I'm like, oh man, people were just doing the best they could in a really difficult time, you know, because we don't know how to handle grief. Um, yeah. So I think, how did I, how did I change? I had to step up in a big way because I wanted to shut down. You know, I wanted to um, not get out of bed and I, I would look at myself in the mirror and go, well, you have a four-year-old who needs you and you're all she has. So I, every day it was kind of this dis discussion with myself of, I know you don't want to do this, get up and you promise you'd create a good life for your daughter. So I'm forever grateful to Buddy for leaving me such a, a precious part of my life. And someone who literally makes my life beautiful is that little human. That's amazing. So Ashley Wellman had to take the advice of Dr. Ashley oh. Wellman. Yeah, she sounded really smart. I just didn't I didn't believe her for a really long time. It's like you're you're just duck. Don't don't I'm not listening to you. Yeah. Well, obviously that kind of a tragedy, it it's sudden and it's unexpected and um it is traumatic uh, when something like that happens to any of us. So I know that you have created a program and we'll get more into it later about handle how tragedy can be followed by happiness. Um, I personally have have lost individuals that I'm still having trouble with because they were close friends of my of mine, and I had to learn to grieve from the same perspective as a human being instead of a profession. Because just like you, you know, you had a persona that you 
lived that was you that was in the same thing with being a law enforcement officer that's just who you are that's why cops are cops that's why firemen are firemen of our fighters you know uh, that's why doctors are doctors because everybody you live that persona that's who you are so you know when you're in that certain um mode there's certain restrictions that we put on ourselves on how to act in public and how to act in personal life. And sometimes they carry through and over. And when we're hit with something like this, we have to kind of try to step outside of that and look inside and say, which you did very well because you realized in, again, you have a precious gift that you to move forward. So well done. Thank you. It was not well, easy. It was not easy. People, people tell me like, oh, I don't know how you're so strong. I don't know how you're doing this. I said, neither do I. <laughs> I don't either. You know, and I think, I think I'm very blessed because you know, I'll tell people, you know, I can't understand what another widow's going through or another single mother's going through or anything like that. But for me, I look at my life with Buddy. If had he told me in 2010 that he was going to die in 2018, I would have done it a million times over again, right? There is not a moment that I won't say I'm the woman I am today because I was loved by him like that and because I got the gift of our child. You know, and yes, my life doesn't look anything like what I thought it was going to look like. I wanted a table of four people and not only did it not go to four people, it got cut from 3 to 2. And so it's really been um I just had the 2 year anniversary of his death. It's very much been a forced self-study of who I am, what I'm willing to tolerate, what I'm worth, you know what I mean? What my goals in life are and what's important to me. And that's probably the hardest thing I've ever done in my entire life is step back and, and I mean, study me. You have to redef kind of redefine yourself a little absolutely. bit. Absolutely. Which everybody can do. Mm -hmm. it, it, you know, it's hard. You have, you have the power to do it. You have the process for doing it. Yeah. Um, is there a process that you that you might want to share with everybody as to what they can do if something like this happens to them? Well, I think what my process became was I hit rock bottom and then I hit rock bottom again. And then I kept saying like, this can't get worse. And I would hit rock bottom again. Um, it's a learning process. I, um, you know, after, so I had the miscarriages, I had buddy's death. I had uh, a really big setback at work and, you know, I would go, oh my God. So now the one thing that really I had stable, my job now is not even what it had been historically. And so, and I think some of that had to do with grief and the fact that grief makes other people uncomfortable. And so because I was the widow and, you know, I wasn't quote the woman they had fallen in love with, I think, you know, that, that was another tragedy on top of it. So it, it I kept thinking, okay, I'm going to get two steps forward. And then you go six feet back and you start becoming your own worst enemy because it's like, oh, well, how am I going to overcome this now? You know? And so I think the best advice I'd give to somebody is think deep down about what you want out of life because it's so short. And I think if, if his death taught me anything, he was 44 and healthy and had a pulmonary embolism. He was so healthy. So if he can die, I'm not guaranteed tonight. I'm not guaranteed tomorrow. So when work or a relationship or something is making you sick or taking your life from you, right? The joy of life from you. Are you worth more than that? And it's the scariest answer when the answer is yes. <laughs> and then you have to think of, oh my God, that means I have a lot of work ahead of me to redefine who I am. And so that's kind of been the journey I've been on. It's you want so badly to cling to what used to be and who you used to be. But it's that moment that you say, 
It's not going to be easy. There's a hell of a lot of risk, right? Because we're comfortable in the uncomfortable, right? When stability is the uncomfortable, we end up saying like, oh, I can't leave this. But it's like a bad marriage. <laughs> I can't, I can't stop doing this because I'm used to this. I'm comfortable with this. But it's that moment you say, I deserve better. Buddy would want better for me, right? He would be the one telling me like, what the hell are you doing? Get up. It's time to, you know, go do something, go travel, go meet somebody, go have fun. Uh, so it's keeping that in the back of your head of what, what would he have been telling me? What life would he have wanted for me? And it wouldn't be one where I'm refused to fight for my health and my happiness and my daughter's health and happiness. What did you go through or are you still going through? I know there's like a five-step process in grief. Oh. So did you go through the standard five step process or I don't believe in the five steps. You believe in that? No, Kubler Ross, I don't believe <laughs> I don't believe in that. Neither do I model. So. Yeah, I think there are stages and there's moments, right? Where there are I could I could see compartments of different emotions. But those compartments can be like a plane crash where they just keep opening. It's like the, you know, the luggage things in an airplane. Once you close one, oh my God, it's just two seconds before it pops back open again. You never know what's going to trigger your grief. I was just telling a friend um, that a movie that I've seen millions of times, it's Boys in the Hood. And I show it to my class to teach them about, um, are, you know, are people born criminal or do they become criminal? And what happens when people in the same family, one is good and one, you know, turns into criminal behavior and those types of things what causes it? So Boys in the Hood's a really cool example of that. And I'm in the middle of class thinking I'm doing really great. And there's a scene at the end that there's screaming after trauma. And I could hear Reagan's voice. I could hear my voice screaming mm -hmm. for Buddy. Oh my God. And I'm sitting in the middle of 50 students, right? So I just said like, I'll be right back. <laughs> and I ran out the door. I could barely make it to the bathroom because my legs weren't working. I was having a physical reaction to something that quote, I should have been okay. That shouldn't have bothered me. But PTSD and grief, those things, because you loved so hard, the loss is so deep. And so that's the cost of life, right? And I'm grateful that I had something that precious to lose because some people never will. But it's also, I'm never going to be over it. The thing is, I'm going to learn how to deal with it the best I can. And when I can't deal with it by myself, I ask for help. But there are no stages. There's these nice little um, charts. I like to take a pen and just scribble big old huge circles around all of it because when you go to step five, you're going to be on step one again and then three and then zero and then 14 you didn't even know existed. <laughs> so I think it's just you got to give yourself grace and patience because we want there to be a book. We do. We want there to be a rule book. And I want people to tell me, what do I do next? And there just isn't an answer to that. It's saying, yeah, I agree yeah. with that. Yeah, there's no real answer. And, you know, even I had to bring up the five step process process, because I'm sure that some people are going to say, well, wait a minute, there's a five step process that you need mm -hmm. to follow. And but in reality, you don't need to follow that because no. those processes, in my experience, I've lost a lot of people in my life. And I lost my father when I was 17. He was only 39. And it never stopped since then. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. I've lost a lot of people in my life, very mm -hmm. important people um, that I loved all the way down the road. I still get triggered by them. Mm -hmm. I still, if I'll watch something, I'll see something, mm -hmm. I'll hear smell something. something. Smell yeah. something. Yeah. And it all comes back or I go, oh, you know, today's uh, so-and-so's birthday. Mm -hmm. You know, it would have been, would have mm -hmm. been, you know, mm -hmm. and why didn't I, two of the individuals I lost to suicide, 
unfortunately. Oh, so they were sorry. colleagues of mine. And, you know, one of them actually was the godparents of my kids. So, you know, they, I feel guilty sometimes mm -hmm. because I say, why didn't he mm -hmm. pick up the phone and call me? Because we that's were very, close. that's very normal. I, he, I mean, I think with any loss, there's that guilt of like, for me, I was like, should I have, you know, the only warning sign I had was a little pain. And he said he had a pain in his ribs, but he was like, I'm 44. I'm super yeah. healthy. I have a cold. You think I'm going to go to the doctor? You all know how any man listening or any woman who has a man in your life, you know exactly what the answer was. It was like, absolutely not. This is stupid. You know, and so in my in my head, I was like, what if I had said something different? What if I had forced him to? What if I had and and then in hindsight, it's like no one would have thought that that beautiful specimen had a pulmonary embolism. There's no way. Right. And so had he gone into the doctor, he wouldn't have said, Oh, I think I have a pulmonary embolism. Can you do a CAT scan on me? You know, that he would have said, I think I have a cold, my chest is hurting, and they would have said, Cool, here's some antibiotics, you know? Exactly. So I think, I think the reason we want the guilt is because then there's some kind of control. I would have had control in that situation and I lost control of my life when that happened. Interesting you know? perspective from, mm -hmm. that, from that point of view, actually. Mm -hmm. I hadn't thought about it from that way because here I'm going, well, we were such good friends. I could have. We were yeah, such good friends. Enough. I could have. But in reality, the circumstances that they were in mm -hmm. are what caused that mm -hmm. to take place. And the same thing mm -hmm. with tragically losing somebody mm -hmm. so quickly. Mm -hmm. um, with, you never, with there's really, you just never know. There's really just no way of, of knowing, you know, none of us would actively watch someone we love disappear. That's not no. none of us. And so, I mean, I do, I think guilt becomes this thing where I can understand that I want to know why and how. And so it's, oh, because I failed him. Oh, because I didn't do this. And it's, it's just so much more complex than us. And I think there's peace in that. And I think there's so much frustration and anger in that too. Yeah. Cause I wanted to, I wanted to save him and you wanted to save these people you loved. And oh, exactly. yeah. And so, and that's a lesson for, for anybody out there listening too, because your grief process can be a long time. It doesn't have to be over in seven days. It doesn't have to be over in five days. And it doesn't have to look like people who are in the same situation with you. So my grief doesn't look like my daughter's grief. It doesn't look like his parents grief. Like, can you imagine losing a son or a brother, but being a wife, there was different grief, you know? So each one of us, not only was grieving different aspects of the man we lost, but then there's other, you know, each of us had our own struggles and our own losses and our own dreams that went away. And so, you know, and the way another widow grieves her young husband with a child, you know, right. I can't say, oh, I should be grieving like her because there's a million circumstances that, that go into it, you know? And so I think people do watch and they say like, oh man, she's grieving well or not well, right? There's all these judgments made, but it's, there's no way of evaluating how someone's grieving. The only thing you can do is say, I'm here and mean it and be comfortable in the uncomfortable when someone's mm -hmm. grieving with you, because there's a lot of people who weren't able to stay in my life because they didn't want to deal with the Ashley they didn't love anymore. And there were people that crawled out of the woodwork that I would have never, ever thought were going to come and be by my side that saved me. You know what I mean? That, right. that rallied around me. I used to call them my sister wives or, you know, <laughs> my best friends or things. <laughs> 
because they would never leave me alone. You know, and in the time I'd say like, they'd say, are you tired of us? And I'd say, yeah, I am. <laughs> Please go away. And then I, you know, the moment that door closed, I'd be like, oh, don't go. You know, I wanted them there. And so um, I've had such loyal friends too, who have been so patient and there's no judgment. I've made plenty of mistakes in my grief process. You know, I've acted out, I've done X, Y, and Z too much or not enough or, you know, but I've always had people and that's what, that's what's made it worth it. I've always had people that said, I'm proud of you. I'm here for you. I love you. I'm so sorry. And they've all meant it. And so I think it's, it's also listening to the voices that truly are there for you and value you and are committed to the process. Cause there's going to be plenty of people who are not able to support you and that's okay. But cling to the people who will, because that's where you'll find your strength and your energy and support. That's fantastic advice. I think that everybody should uh, listen to that. Look around you, listen, open your heart, and uh, be there for somebody, or be open to somebody being there for you. Yes, that's hard too. That's hard too. <laughs> yes. So what do you teach in college? I teach, so I'm a criminologist and I teach um, st some standard stuff. I've taught way too many classes, but my go-to is I teach theory. And I'm one of those people who is a nerd and loves why, the answer to why. Um, so why do people become criminal? What makes somebody criminal? I teach that class. I teach intro a lot, which is fun because you get college students to fall in love with criminal justice like my advisor didn't want me to do. <laughs> Yeah, the advisor. Yeah, they were terrible. Um, but I, I can teach kind of every topic in criminology in that class. So I can teach them about law enforcement and victims and corrections and, um, you know, legal things. So that's a really neat class. But my fun classes, ironically, <laughs> are not fun topics. Uh, homicide, victimology, wrongful convictions. I really love anything that's sociologically driven, people driven, and that have human stories behind them. So like I was saying, um, you even in homicide, we forget how many people are affected. It's not just the victim. It's the offender. It's the offender's family. It's the victim. It's the victim's family. It's the law enforcement that, that works the case. It's the media people covering it. So there's such a wide human element to just one act, you know, that, that devastates lives and changes the story. But I love cases like that or stories like that. So wrongful conviction, someone who sits in prison for 25 years for something they didn't do, you know, and the default is, well, they had to be doing something. Yep. That's not the, that is not what we're talking about here, right? It's a human life that didn't do what they were, you know, supposedly did. And so telling students those stories and causes of those types of convictions, and it's just fascinating. Anything where I can tell a human story, I'm in. So what was your, I know we're getting kind of back to this portion of it, but what was your, your, did you help solve any cases? I did not help solve them. I wouldn't say I helped solve them. There were a couple that got solved while I was there. I'd like to think I had a big role in it. One of the things, uh, they were just so great. I worked with uh, a detective, Detective Bob Dean and Heather Phillips. They were amazing. And they let me do things I probably shouldn't have been doing. <laughs> Don't, don't tell their bosses. But I got to go interview suspects. I got to go into prisons and talk to people. There was one suspect we had that would only talk to a female. And so, you know, Bob was laughing. He's like, oh, this is fun. You know, so he put me in there to ask questions to this guy. And um, I got to work with the families. I got to organize case files, turn in evidence. So they really let me have my hands in the mix. And so there were a couple of them that did get solved. And it's it's wild to think 
You know, and you would think that they would be pure joy. I'm sure someone listening is like, oh, that would be so amazing. Someone knock on your door and say 25 years later, you know, we've solved this. Imagine talking about grief going back to square one. Imagine yeah. this fight that you've had your entire life now dedicated to fighting for your mom or wife or, you know, sister or whatever. You know, their case needs to be solved. And then when you get the answer, okay, you're Starts back at, over. yeah, you start all over. And then what if it's someone you know who hurt your loved one? And then you have to grieve that person too. And then, you know, or what if the person's dead or what if there's not enough evidence to prosecute them? There's so much that now starts over. And a trial is not fun for anybody, particularly a family who's going to hear the details of their loved one's death. So, so many complicated things. Um, but I loved it. I really, I remember begging them, can I just be a detective? <laughs> can I be a detective? Just give me a badge. Yeah. And they give said, no, no, Dr. Wellman, get out of here. <laughs> it's like I could be, pardon me, I'm Officer Dr. Wellman. Thank That's you. right. That's detective right. Detective Dr. Wellman. <laughs> I wanted it so bad. Who knows? Well, I'll see if I can make some phone calls. I still Please have a do. few people, you know, in the in in the mix. Tell them I'm really fun. It'll be great. <laughs> <laughs> I'll, I will do that. So how can someone who has been the victim of a tragic loss uh, get help? I think seek the professionals. You know, I, th I think the default is to try to grieve by yourself. And it's impossible. Uh, I think the, the best thing that somebody can do is seek uh, you know, whether it's a, a mental health therapist or even asking your doctor, you know, look, I'm not sleeping. I haven't slept in three months. That's not good, right? Your heart can't heal. Your mind can't heal when your physical body is not healing. And so I think getting professional help is really critical. I think also one of the biggest things that I've done to heal, right, or that I've watched families do is say, you know, you cannot have the life you thought you were going to have. That's that's not here anymore. And one realizing that's okay to grieve that forever, right? But you also then have to say, what life am I going to create? Because you can't constantly stay in the, I wish I had. I mean, I, I remember the image of my four humans sitting at a table. You know, I that was my family. I couldn't ask for a better family. I would, I would fight any monster to get Buddy back, right? Or to have that normal family and to have that baby I wanted, but look at how gorgeous a family I do have is, right? And it's all because of that love I did have with Buddy. And so I think it's giving yourself permission to say, there's no disrespect. There's no forgetting. None of that. Just because joy comes back into your life, right? It's giving yourself permission to say, I can still grieve and miss and love and honor someone who's not here by living. You know, and, and it's, that's a fight, that is a fight. I'm two years out and there are days where I go, oh no, it's never going to work. My life is terrible. <laughs> and then I have to say, stop it. You're still here. So, you know, what are we going to do tomorrow? You know, it's an interesting journey when we lose somebody. It, um, as I said earlier, I lost people when I was, I was 17 years old. I lost my father, technically 15, because my parents had divorced, not giving a big long story, but my parents had divorced prior to that. So I actually lost him at the age of 15 because he'd his brother came and picked him up and took him back to another state completely. And we didn't know he was sick at the time. So it was kind of one of those things. So in reality, and it took me a long time to kind of come to grips and understand. In fact, without divulging how old I really am, we'll just say decades. <laughs> I'm 21. I'm 28 and a uh -huh. half. Decade. They can't see us, right? So it's okay. Right. No, they have no idea. <laughs> 
So decades has taken me to really come to grips and understand why what took place and get over the anger and the resentment that I had had for such a long time over uh, circumstances. You know, I lost my mother. She died of a heart attack. And um, my brother did not tell me that she was in the hospital with heart attack. So that was a whole nother process that I had to go through. And, um, you know, we, it took a long time for that thing to get resolved. And for my brother and I were just recently started talking and, you know, that was 2010. So, you know, it's, it's an interesting aspect as a human being where we hold on to certain griefs when we lose somebody, because in, intrinsically we always need somebody. We always, that's why we have families. That's why we have friends. That's why we have husbands, wives, boyfriends, girlfriends. You, you, you always need somebody, somebody to be there with you. I don't know anybody that actually other, well, I might know a few. My father-in-law used to be a hermit and I was like, I don't want to see anybody. Get out of my house. Yes, get he off did. My yard. He loved it. He loved, <laughs> he loved it. Yeah, your big sign, get off my yard. And family too, leave. Um, that That really, you know, everybody wants to be loved. Everybody needs to be loved. We as a human being, I think, need that. I'm not a psychologist. I'm not a doctor, but I'm a human being and I've watched a lot of tragedy in my life as well. In my career in law enforcement, especially, I've watched a lot of tragedy. And, you know, in the 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 thread that I saw through all of that is everybody needs somebody. Yes. I think it makes, it's what life's about, right? So I could do everything in the world. I could see the most beautiful things, experience the most amazing moments and visions and whatever. But if no one's there next to me to celebrate it or to see it with me, part of the joy of any experience is looking next to you and saying like, wow, we're doing this. You know, did you see that? Did you watch that? you like, that was some of the the first things that, that broke my heart was like, he's not here to see Reagan go to her first day of kindergarten or you know, do her kindergarten graduation or all of these little things, because it's, that's what life's about. It's not about anything other than looking next to you and saying like, did you see that? <laughs> we are doing this. You know, like we're on a plane going to Europe. What's happening? Um, and there's so many, I would, I would tell anyone listening, there's so many dreams we have and we wait for the perfect moment to do them. Just do them. It may not be on the budget you thought you were going to do it on. You know, there's hostels and all kinds of fun things, but we had so many trips planned and so many memories that we were going to make go do it. You know, now I'm, I seek ways, of course, COVID stopped, but I seek ways to make memories. Um, even when they're not quite the way I thought they were going to look, because I said, you know, we're not guaranteed any more time than, than what we have right this second. Well, and without plugging one more thing before you go, but the whole aspect of my podcast, one more thing before you go is that people need to remember, say what you want to say, do what you want to do, be able to connect with who you want to connect because that time may not be there tomorrow. Mm-hmm. And do so, it scared. Do, do it scared. <laughs> so like you, you know, you said like even kind of reconnecting with a loved one that you there's anger and stuff. That's hard. Do it scared because there's something valuable to those kinds of things. You know, for me it was kind of pivoting like you had said my career from being this scholar to find something that makes you happy. You know what I mean? And it's for us, for us girls, because I've made a promise for a, a beautiful life. So that's where my creative writing comes in and things like that. And and reaching out to to families and letting them know that being different's okay. Reagan's forever different because she lost her daddy at four. And, you know, I'm forever different because I'm a widow. And these are things we never would have thought about. We have so many amazing friends who are different in terms of race, sexuality, you know, um, abilities, those types of things. And so 
by surrounding ourselves with people that from the outside, right, aren't like us, our life is so much better, right? Yeah, <laughs> Any human, I like agree. you said, we're, we're made to be like that. So embracing every moment, every human, every experience you have, if it's always people just like me, that's really not that exciting. <laughs> I think I'm exciting, but I need... <laughs> I need other types of people in my life. Reagan needs other types of people in her life. And Reagan needs to be reminded no matter what she's grieving, like no matter what she looks like, no matter, you know, what her heart feels, she is special and beautiful because of the way she is. And so that's kind of been my, my transition is my whole life. I've spent working with victims and survivors of violence. I will always be an advocate for that. But now in my heart, I'm like, I'm a mama who has a baby who needs an advocate too. And I'm a woman who needs an advocate too. And so I'm out there trying to kind of change the narrative. Um, that's what we're doing with our children's book, uh, The Girl Who Dances with Skeletons, my friend Fresno. Yeah. We, so just it's ready for pre-order right this second. It's um, available. It's going to be shipped out in October of this year, 2020. And um, But it's available right now on www.myfriendfresno.com. And your listeners, I'm actually going to give a coupon code for before you go 20. That's going to be the coupon code before you go 20. And they can jump on there and shop and play. But they're looking for that book, The Girl Who Dances with Skeletons, My Friend Fresno. And it stars Reagan and her best friend Fresno, who is actually a play on her best friend, who's a three foot posable skeleton named Fresno. Being a criminologist, it made a lot of sense for her to adopt a skeleton. <laughs> so she's always kind of carried him around and been the fearless defender of Fresno, right? When people laugh or snicker or ask why she has a skeleton, she says, because he's my best friend, right? So what a, what a beautiful world if all of us had a friend that no matter what other people said, we said, yep, that's mine. Mm -hmm. And he's special. And so I'm excited to, yeah, I'm really excited to share the book with people. So tell me what the, what's the book about? Well, so it's it's the first book in a series. We actually have three already scripted out. But this first book is really about Reagan meeting Fresno. And he's scared. And she's a little, you know, standoffish because he's a skeleton. And they learn that even though they're different, right, that they have a lot in common. And they have a lot of things that that make the other person great. And so it really is that message of embracing differences, self love because you're unique. And it's very cute. She says, you know, if everyone got to know Fresno, everyone would want him for a best friend. You know, he's great at, and she starts telling them things that she loves about Fresno. So it really is just that story of friendship and the, the selflessness and the kind of beautiful view kids have of other people who may not look or act the same way they do, but the love can be just as strong and beautiful, you know, as, as if it wasn't anything weird, like a skeleton, <laughs> And a little girl. Yeah, the heck with Barbie. Let's let's have Yeah. That. Skeletons. Cool, we have a whole actually. closet full of them. Actually, Michael, don't tell anybody. <laughs> <laughs> I think we all have skeletons in our closet. Yeah, we do. <laughs> I'm not opening my closet. I'm going to leave it like no, it is. Keep it shut. Can you tell me what the virtual bone boutique is? Sure. So the bone boutique is open on our website, and that's just our shop. Um, when when tragedy with buddy hit, when my work, you know, kind of 
change dramatically, I had to stop and think, what do I want out of life? And I wanted joy. And so I thought I can find joy by, by sharing love with other people. So I opened the bone boutique online and there's where you'll find our book. You'll find um, the plush doll Fresno. He's so cute. He's 12 inches tall and he's embroidered. It's a little skeleton. Everyone needs him. It makes me smile. And then puzzles, adult puzzles, worksheets for uh, families to talk about differences and why we're so special because we're unique. All of those resources, games, all of that can be found on www.myfriendfresno.com. That's amazing. But well, how, or how can somebody cut it out? How about how can somebody find out more about you and your services? Well, so if they want to know more about me, they can check out my website, which has changed dramatically from Dr. Ashley Wellman to more Ashley Wellman. It's www.ashleywellman.com, or they can email Ashley, the author, uh, myfriendfresno at gmail.com. And I'll have links to all those in the show notes on my website before you go podcast.com. So are there any last words of wisdom you'd like to share? I guess be kind to one another and be kind to yourself, right? Life is not easy. There's a lot of challenges and complications and costs that come from it, but we all get the chance to play the game. That means you lose. That means you win. That means all kinds of exciting things along the way, but it isn't worth doing if you do it scared, if you do it alone, right? So just truly reaching out to other people, being kind, being present, um, and, and trying to, to fight every day for a life you're worthy of, because I think we're worthy of so much more than we give ourselves credit for. That's some outstanding words of wisdom. Ashley, thank you very much for sharing your journey with us. I appreciate your story and what you've accomplished and what you are offering. Um, I think that uh, you have some valuable insight to what somebody's going through and what you've shared. And uh, kudos on raising such a wonderful daughter. Thank you so very much. I'm, I'm where I am because of the amazing people around me. And now I'm glad you're one of them. Why, thank you very much. On a personal note, I found The Girl Who Dances with Skeletons, My Friend Fresno, a book for young children to be utterly brilliant from start to finish. What a fantastic group of messages delivered in a unique, artistic, and fun way. It's a heartwarming book that can be read and shared for years. This series is available for pre-order, I believe. It will be released in October. It also comes in the form of an ebook. You will find the links in the show notes, and I recommend it for you and your young children. Well, that's the end of this episode. Thank you very much for listening, and I hope that you enjoyed the conversation and you were able to learn a few things along the way. Losing someone is tough. If you need help, please reach out to somebody. Don't try to do this alone. There are agencies out there that can help you. You just need to ask. Be sure to check out the link to Dr. Ashley Wellman's info as well as author Ashley Wellman in the show notes. You can also find more out about her books and get a 20% discount with promo code before you go 20. That's one word put together. You'll find it in the show notes and her services. Please watch for the new Over the Teacup segment guaranteed every Thursday after that week's show. But these bonus episodes can happen anywhere in between. I'm excited about next week when we have a conversation with Jacob Craig, one of the youngest comedians on the circuit. We're going to talk about his journey to becoming a comedian and the ups and downs that come with being so young. This is a reminder. Our election is coming up for 2020. We are closing in on November and your vote counts. Please vote early. Ensure that your vote gets counted. If you vote in person, be careful. 
take precautions, but vote. Our country and the soul of our democracy depends upon it. Thanks for listening to this episode of One More Thing Before You Go, a unique conversation about life. If you like our show and want to know more, check out our website at BeforeYouGoPodcast.com. That's BeforeYouGoPodcast.com. Tell your story, share your expertise, contribute to the blog, and subscribe to the newsletter. You can find us as well as subscribe to the program and rate us on your favorite podcast listening platform. And one more thing before you go. Have a nice day, have a nice week, and thanks for listening. One More Thing Before You Go, a unique conversation about life podcast, is a creation of One More Thing Productions, established 2010, all rights reserved.